Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and onto changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pollane. I'm a designer, educator, and writer. My guest today is Scott Smith, founder and managing partner of Changist since 2007. Scott points the way for the team's research and manages partnerships and strategic direction for the group. His work focuses on guiding large organizations towards better futures by blending foresight, narrative design, and strategic thinking. His team has worked with UNICEF, the Red Cross, the Royal Society, and the Dubai Future Foundation, as well as the BBC, Comcast, and Nesta. Scott heads the Strategic Foresight Program for Dubai Future Academy and lectures in the Innovation and Future Thinking Program at IED Barcelona, which he helped create. He co-hosts the Under Futures podcast and is writing a book on futuring to be published summer 2020. Scott, welcome to Power of 10. Thank you. So I've given you the, the sort of quick bio there, but you talk in your manifesto at Changest about how experience matters and you didn't just become sort of futurists overnight. So can you tell me sort of a little bit of how you got from where you were to where you are now? Sure. Um, I started out in the technology forecasting field in the early 1990s and uh, kind of stumbled into it through an interest both in tech and culture and economics and you know, kind of, I like to think about kind of broader systems. And uh, I guess what I didn't know at the time was I was doing something else in that role. Most of my colleagues were quantitative forecasters and building you know, spreadsheet projections. And I was asked to think about and provide analysis about uh, technologies that didn't exist yet. Uh, this is the early days of the web and the internet. And I found myself more and more kind of doing, coming up with models and ways of understanding how people might use particular new innovations in the future. And after doing that for seven or eight years, I kind of reading more about what was going on around me and other sectors and professions, I realized that I was doing, I was doing the wrong thing in the right profession, I guess, that uh, I was doing more kind of qualitative forecasting and, and modeling in another field um, and found my way to more people like me working in a larger organization with people who called themselves futurists who actually had masters and PhDs in the field of strategic foresight and found a kind of better home for applying, I guess, the way that I thought, the way that I processed the world. And through that, uh, I guess about a, uh, three or four years working in that setting, and then another, well, now we're 12 plus years into having changes as a, an agency. Uh, we've been working in this for a long time, looking not just at technology and how people use it, but looking much more at a kind of broad spectrum of issues around the world, the changes in society and culture, changes in economic and business, uh, changes in politics is an area I'm particularly interested in environment and sustainability in the natural world, all of these things kind of tied together. So effectively been working as a futurist in the field of foresight for about uh, 15 years. So we've come to it through through a long process. So that's long enough to know whether some of your track record is, is actually panned out. How is it going? Uh, the killer question. Um, <laughs> I'll start with the hard one. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I think it's there's a couple of ways to look at that. The work that we do isn't about prediction or even kind of point forecasting. We're not sort of looking to be right at a distance in the future, sort of particular time scale in the future, as much as we're trying to understand more about what we don't know and kind of how the world works. I think if you look at it in a kind of broad picture, some of the issues that we were looking at 
you know, a decade, 15 years ago, for example, um, I, I stumbled over one the other day looking at uh, the convergence of health and technology around kind of personal fitness and pulled out a, a report we'd written, I think, in 2008, looking at what's now basically describing Peloton. And we were talking about Fitbit the year they started up and kind of exploring the directions that these particular innovations might go based mainly on the shifts in how healthcare is delivered and how people look after themselves. You know, that's one example forecasting on on the opening of the Chinese market over a decade ago, looking at personal communications and, and the sort of evolution of mobile, you know, pretty good analysis, pretty solid analysis of how that market would mature and develop its own producers, its own, you know, technology manufacturers. I mean, there, there are kind of, you know, individual areas and topics here and there where we actually were closer than not. But the key is what we're learning by digging into those topics and understanding what we don't know about them over time. Yeah. It's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, I, I rejigged my blog the other day and I've been writing it for well, a long time, 12, 13 years. And it meant going through every single post to correct some kind of gremlins <laughs> and stuff in it, and, but which was kind of interesting too, mm -hmm. because I, there were things that I sort of, you know, wrote in 2006 or something saying, you know, I think this is going to happen to telcos or this. And there were two or three things where I thought, wow, I really kind of uh, got that, or at least the arc of it right. I think some of the kind of details and some of the timing of it is often off. Now you've been talking, I talked about it in the introduction, you, you sort of blend foresight and narrative design and strategic thinking. And there's, there's a kind of mix, I guess, of understanding the systems, really looking at some facts and figures, plus, you know, futurists, there's, there's everyone from kind of, uh, you know, yourself, people like Bruce Sterling, Mark Pesci, we'll have a kind of, you know, there's a real mix of extrapolating into the kind of future. There's this sort of narrative science fiction kind of part of it, which is, I guess where Bruce Sterling comes from, through to, you know, much more hardcore, the sort of spreadsheet strategy stuff that you were just talking about sort of leaving behind. So could you talk a little bit about your methodology without getting too kind of heavy in it? And, <laughs> and particularly, we just touched on it a little bit, the, the difference between um, futurism and prediction. Sure. I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty opaque field from the outside and even from the inside sometimes trying to work out definition because you're, you know, on the one hand trying to to move towards a sort of standardization where at least people understand what they mean when they use a word. <laughs> and on the other side, the kind of, you know, the, the pressure for competitive differentiation. So every time you kind of tamp down one, one phrase, another one pops up somewhere else. But I think the, um, you know, as, as I've just kind of described, I actually came from a kind of grounded research background, both, you know, initially in, in kind of more data forecasting, but really my interests grew around the area of qualitative research Basically, what we would understand is almost design research, you know, uh, doing kind of in-depth inter interviewing, observational research studies. And about the time that I got into this field more kind of directly as a more focused practice, there were kind of the early, uh, I guess, the early fusion of design, design practices, I guess, is probably the best way to think about it uh, with the field of foresight. I had the good fortune to work with uh, the internal futures team at Nokia back in the early 2000s at a time when they were really innovating in, you know, bringing together ethnographers and anthropologists and uh, material designers, psychologists, sociologists, you know, bringing together a lot of different people with a lot of different insights into a, a single space to think about what we know and don't know about understanding a particular future. 
And I think our, our general methodology is, you know, as much as is a kind of arc or spine through the middle of it is, you know, a basis of doing solid research up front, you know, as much as, as can be done given a particular topic or subject. And actually being thorough, not just about looking into a topic when someone asks us about it, but, you know, maintaining an ongoing sensing and curiosity and keeping track of what we find and learn about the world. Um, using that as a base to then do some sense-making and using different models to understand the relations and impacts between different trends and driving forces and factors. And then I think, you know, what we've discovered around design is that, you know, not only are there other different ways to gain insight on the world that isn't just coming from data or from a, from desk research, but also how you tell stories about potential futures. How do you actually kind of materialize scenarios and stories, narratives about a possible future in a way that other people can interrogate it and engage with it? And I think that's where we have found our kind of strength in recent years is combining the kind of solid research base and the ability to tell a story so that other people can dig into it and critique it and understand it more deeply so we can learn something from it. I mean, the goal of this work isn't just to come up with a, an amazing idea about the future or sort of describe some sci-fi situation, but to use that narrative as a tool to get more deeply into what we can now understand better about a possible future. So we can come back to the present and design better for it, plan better for it, strategize better for it. So do you find that trying to build that narrative is actually the kind of harder part? Because my experience of this now, I mean, I, I do the one of the Fjord Trends team, but also I generally have a kind of systems thinking approach to the work we do. And we were talking just before recording about the difference between kind of products and, and systems and the complexity difference as well. But part of that is you can kind of see how all these things connect together, especially if you really immerse yourself in it. And there's multiple, if this, then that kind of th sort of loops and threads that come up. And so once you're immersed in it, you can kind of see this, imagine this possible future, but to then just kind of present that to someone, it seems like such a leap. And so part of the challenge uh, I would imagine is a shaping a narrative where you're on, effectively, it's, it's a kind of sequence of if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, to actually explain it to people, to take people along the journey with you. Is that sort of a, a challenge for you? It is a challenge. It's a definite challenge because you're, you know, if you do this work and you like doing this work, your mind travels in a lot of different directions simultaneously. You know, you're, you can, it's like anything else. You can stall yourself out by trying to map all of the connections, you know, trying for a sort of perfect model and to get into all of the nuances of everything would be, impossible and kind of counterproductive. I mean, imagine doing that in user research. You could carry on forever if clients and budgets didn't stop you. But I think the key is to know when you feel like you know enough to make uh, an informed decision and to move ahead. But also, you know, it's an iterative process of trying to establish enough of a, we, we think about it as a wireframe. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a design term. We think about the, the kind of the narrative as a kind of wireframe. When do we have a sufficient story here or sufficient amount of information that we can collectively understand it through a narrative. Uh, I think the term I've written about before and is lossy futures. It's kind of like lossy <laughs> audio. You know, nice. you the brain can fill in the pieces that are missing. We don't have to tell everybody everything. And that's sufficient because if you understand what you're looking at, then you you realize this is um, you know, this is a kind of piece of insight 
the story itself is not a, it's, it shouldn't just be seen as a story. It's a way of communicating something we've learned or understand, but it also is a kind of, I think of it as a, a box. It's a container, a vessel that contains many more, you know, bits of insight and data. So in a way, the story or the artifact, the designed object, the experience is a kind of, you know, it's a virus. It has a kind of a carrying container, but then it has a payload of information inside. And that may sound a little bit too dry, but it's why humans tell stories. It's yeah, a way yeah. of shortcutting, you know, the long explanation of over in that valley, there are lots of bison and really we should have a party that goes and captures them. You, know, you can just paint a few on the cave wall and cut to the chase. <laughs> okay. So um, how often do you encounter um, denial in, in your work where you're presenting or painting a future, a possible future, and you're being sort of met with, well, we just don't think that's going to happen. Does that ever happen? Oh, it happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, I think, well, I should back up on that. If you're, if you, you know, hopefully we're, we're trusted, you know, people have some faith that we're doing our jobs right. So I would say more often the, these days, the sentiment is, I'm skeptical, but tell me more, you know, explain to me, help me understand why you think that. Part of that is a kind of competition between the future that an individual or an organization may strongly want and what reality actually presents, you know, and, and the sort of what the indicators are pointing at. This is no different than, you know, when I used to do quant forecasting, people will disagree. I think the key is to sort of say, look, this isn't, again, exactly the way things are going to unfold. It's a direction. It's a direction we're pointing to to understand something more clearly so that you can take more concrete action by anticipating it. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to present, you know, a, a future packaged as fact. But I think the, the other element is giving people a look inside the work. I think if you treat this kind of practice as a black box, you create problems for yourself. It can be kind of presented as magical and, you know, uh, so complicated, no one could understand it. But honestly, you know, our kind of point of view is that basically anybody can approach this work and do this work to some extent, but you need to understand what you're looking at. So I think opening up the process, giving people a sense of the building blocks, how we arrive at certain conclusions is really key to helping mitigate that issue of skepticism. So it, it's interesting because what you're describing is also the the similar challenge that you have with with any kind of synthesis, I guess, mm -hmm. which is you know, balancing keeping a your mind or the possibilities as open as long as you can with the fact that at some point you have to converge on one or several possible interpretations of that synthesis. How do you go about that? Ooh, I think it's it becomes a kind of question of feel after a while. You know, you you have a sense, you kind of have a an experience as to you know when are we reaching the sort of the edge of the horizon of usefulness, and can we effectively get something that's good enough or quite useful or, or maybe very valuable from coming back to convergence? I think mm. you know this is very much a kind of you know you have to kind of guide and sherpa people through the process with you and help them also feel what those contours look like. I mean, most clients, organizations don't have experience in this area. They're really curious. Like the level of interest has grown substantially in the past decade because of the, the sort of uncertainty just about everybody faces in any, any area of their life or, or business. But taking people kind of along with you so they can kind of get a sense of those contours and understand, all right, I think we've got enough here. We can begin to come to some conclusions 
based on what we have based on, you know, rather than having to, as I said earlier, kind of carry on and map all systems forever. And they also, I guess, count on us to have some level of that kind of embedded knowledge as well. They don't have to see all of it. They trust us that, you know, it's like a lawyer. You hire them because they've, they've practiced law. They have a sense of where to stop <laughs> and where to go on. But I mean, one of the things that with, you know, to the classically designers always complain about is, you know, everyone's a designer, right? So everyone has an opinion <laughs> yeah. about things. Does that happen to you that everyone has an opinion about the future? Because they've been, I don't know, they've been reading Wired and, and the FT. Yeah, well, that that's also kind of a, uh, I guess, an occupational hazard. And it's a good thing because it means that people have interest. But yeah. it also means you're challenging, in the past, I've called them kind of flat pack futures, that if you don't have the, the process or the kind of framework in place to formulate your own, the easiest thing to do is to take one off a shelf. Um, you know, and that shelf may be someone's opinion uh, in The Economist or Wired. It may be the last TED talk you heard, or it, you know, it might be the last best-selling book you read, um, or, or, you know, Bezos or, Am or Musk, you know, has a, a kind of worldview. That's how humans work. You know, we, we appropriate other realities, but I think, you know, the key is to kind of contextualize that for people and help them understand kind of what is it you're looking at and what have you brought to the table and what do we have and how can we constructively work those two things together? And, you know, maybe you'll lose some of yours, but let's let's create one of your own so you actually own this view of the future rather than kind of picking it up on the street. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, I can see. One of the kind of designers' secret superpowers that I often talk about is their ability to make abstract ideas tangible, you know, whether it's in sketches or actually being able to kind of make something. And you've worked with Superflux and a couple of other speculative designers. You talked before about the kind of, the payload being the idea, but the actual sort of design things, uh, the, the manifestation of those things being the kind of um, the carrier for that. Mm -hmm. What role does speculative design play in in sort of explaining or manifesting the kind of futures that you're imagining? The speculative design has been a been a really useful tool, you know, for this field, and that it's kind of raised the the awareness and possibilities about using objects and experiences as a way of communicating ideas. I kind of came from the, and this is a meaningless, and some for some most people are probably a meaningless distinction. I came from the kind of design fiction side of the, the discussion, which I feel like comes more from a applied futures approach. Again, the distinction is probably meaningless, except if you think about speculative design as a tool of critique, all of those practices together, you know, whatever label you sort of put on it, has given us a new kind of workbench, a set of tools to use to yeah, materialize particular futures, guide investigation of them, help dig into them. But also I think it's come of age at a time when you've got a kind of generation of, let's call them information consumers, decision makers who have grown up in an experience culture where the, you know, the future literally does arrive on their tabletop on a daily basis. And so I think using objects, stories, media, narrative experiences as a way of communicating these, you know, these possibilities has been incredibly useful. And we, we ourselves, you know, kind of working internally, continue to experiment a lot with it, playing, I think, much more on the media side now, because we're not product designers. We have a couple of designers on the team, but they don't really see themselves as kind of functioning that way. I guess we're keen on finding new ways to tell stories that help kind of serve the same ends as an object as a kind of narrative object. And that's that's really exciting because we have a science fiction writer that works with us, Madeline Ashby, um, 
who also has a degree in foresight. So she walks both sides of that line. And we find, you know, we try to bring in approaches and tools and kind of means of communicating from wherever we can pick them up. So it's a, it sounds like you're kind of creating the uh, the methodology as you go as well. And Madeline's your collaborator on the book, right? Yes. Yeah, so um, in the process of doing this, so we've actually taught as well as practiced professionally for about 10 years. I've been teaching since about 2009, 2010. And in the process of that, trying to bake the work that we do or the methodology or the, the approach into a describable process. It's what we teach in, in uh, at the Future Academy in Dubai. And Madeline and I teaching together there, Susan Cox-Smith, my partner, teaching there. And we have finally gotten to the point of explaining that methodology and also the kind of mindsets and what are we thinking about and what are the different experiences of doing this in a book that's going to be out next July, July 2020, called How to Future. And I love the fact it's going to be out in July 2020. It's just always going to be going to be out. Maybe you never publish it. (laughs) Don't say that. No, no, please. No, it's it's interesting. It's available for pre-order already. It's available for pre-order. I think the the various Amazons around the world have got it uh, available. The the 2020 timing is kind of interesting, not just because it's it's a nice round iconic number that feels like the future. Yeah. But it also, I think, is coming at a time when, you know, uncertainty is building and, you know, we're facing elections, Brexit, climate change, you know, so many kind of major transitions in health and energy and all these other areas. And it feels like a really kind of full moment to be bringing something like that to people. So, you know, hopefully it's a good timing. No, absolutely. There's definitely a kind of a massive amount of change going on at the moment. And, um, Part of me kind of feels like, well, the world's going through this incredible shift. And I think of Alvin Toffler, famous futurist, and his kind of in the third wave and this idea of kind of waves sweeping around the world. And then other waves receding as they're sweeping and you get this kind of riptide, this friction between the two. It feels like there's quite a lot of that going on right now. On the other hand, part of me will think, well, twas ever thus, you know, it's the world has always been very kind of changing. We're just perhaps hearing about it an awful lot more than than we used to. You've talked about being, you know, part of your role is kind of helping organizations and companies, your clients, um, think about the future, think about keeping the bits of the future they want and leaving behind the parts that they don't. Given that sort of twas ever thus idea, how much agency does any organization really have in in keeping the bits of the future and leaving parts behind? That's a really good question. It's probably a graduate seminar as an answer. <laughs> I think the, uh, <laughs> okay. or at least a, another book, the second book. It's, I think it's important to kind of, on the one hand, not kind of take the view that a lot of science fiction kind of propagates that you have this tabula rasa future. Like everything is wiped out. We start fresh, you know, spend five minutes in the tube in London and kind of look at the walls around you. And you'll see like this accretive layers of, the sort of Victorian foundations, the the Edwardian, you know, electrics, the probably still the Edwardian carriages. But, it, you know, the, the multiple a, promises of yeah. glossy futures in the advertising. Absolutely. And, you know, I think Stuart Brand described this really well when he described pacing layers, sort of pace layers, that, you know, the idea that there are bits of the world that move slowly and bits of the, that move quite quickly. And being able to get a sense of how that traffic moves is kind of helpful to understanding you know, if there's any number of metaphors, we talk about it sometimes as kind of shipping forecasts or weather maps. You know, how do you how do you kind of understand where you are in this swirl? But I think 
you know, partly because of the the connectedness you just described, the level of agency in some ways has gone, you know, up exponentially in the sense that, you know, we may not be kind of sitting physically next door to something, but the ability to affect change around the world, often in a not positive way, is actually substantial right now because of that transparency. And, you know, we're effectively kind of financial and news markets are wired into our brain stems. But I think, you know, organizations absolutely can because you're either anticipating and sort of taking a kind of prototyping and shaping, you know, forward leaning position in what you're doing, or you're reacting and reacting takes a lot more energy and gives you the results that the other party wants you to have. And, you know, without kind of turning it into like a sports or fight metaphor, you know, I think, you know, any of us, you, you have to be able to make active choices about what works for you and what works for the system that you sit inside and what hopefully what works for society more broadly. I think looking at stuff like climate change right now, if you think about agency, we could just say, well, this is a complex system and this, nothing can be done about it. Or, you know, important nodes in the system can start moving in a different direction and affect systemic change over time that could be substantial. And changing some of the nodes and the interactions of those nodes does start to change the entire system. Right? Absolutely. I mean, and we see that in you know politics very much right now, the kind of emergence of new nodes in the system, whether it's populism, you know, or kind of networked democracy, whatever, you know, all these sort of things begin to re reshape the function of that system over time. And yeah, I think there's a lot of issues right now that are getting people more interested in understanding all of the connections around them and how they can affect it. I mean, while taking that kind of systems view of things, I think one of the, the key things of that system thinking is this idea of feedback loops that you can push levers on and a lever that would produce a good thing. The temptation is to just push even harder to produce more of a good <laughs> thing, but actually you know, tip it over into kind of feed, negative feedback loop. And a lot of what we're seeing is this sort of overreaction all the time. It's hard not to think that the pace of communication creates this kind of action-reaction oscillation that's happening much, much faster than it, than it ever used to when people had time to think about things or, you know, the president had time to have kind of think about something before he wrote a letter that then got kind of um, went through another writer to kind of polish it up rather than just kind of blasting out a tweet. Because that, that creates those various sort of high-frequency oscillations. And it's, I mean, the archetype of this is obviously like high-frequency trading, right? Where suddenly you get like a flash crash where everything crashes. Nobody really knows why, but it's like this kind of reactions in the, in the complex system. It feels that's going back to what we were saying before. It feels like in some respects the world is as, as it ever used to be, but our kind of reactions to it are so kind of fast and, um, that we sort of create our own chaos. Absolutely. I think the the... You know, the high frequency trading example is probably really good that this is, you know, it's an unstable system because it's so, you know, the, I guess the, yeah, the distance between nodes seems to have shortened. As you said, like there, there's a reason why we have, in some cases, layers of government or, or systems that can help kind of mitigate shock in some ways. Um, too much of that is a bad thing because it, you know, insulates and things become sclerotic and systems stagnate. But I think uh, if you, you can go too far in the other direction and kind of adopt a, a you know cybernetics kind of mindset where everything is a perfectly balanced system that can be controlled, you know, through certain kind of key interventions, and I think that's that is dangerous to sort of oversystematize it, you know, back to our kind of like just enough just enough description discussion earlier. I think um, one of the most important things back to your last question in a way is. 
understanding where are the key leverage points and you can use those for good. You can intervene in, you know, humanitarian crises or you can intervene in, you know, sort of negative health phenomena, those sorts of things. Or you can change the actors in a system in a way that can help mitigate problems. Um, or you can over intervene and try to kind of become a, you know, I think the theoretical term is super actor, you know, where you can intervene in brittle systems and attack them to negative ends. You know, this is basically terrorism. You know, it's how it works. A small group of people can affect major disruption. Rework out how to sort of hack the system. As yeah. Well. And, and now, unfortunately, they're getting better at doing that from a distance with less effort. But I think the same approach tells us how a community could intervene, you know, to improve local health standards or how do we deal with migration or, you know, the sorts of issues that we like to focus much more on that learn from that, but also actually produce some kind of net good in the world rather than just, you know, manufacturing a, a future for the sake of it. That's interesting. It's the same mentality in many respects. One well, not mentality, it's the same understanding that there's a system here and it takes this kind of form and it's got these structures, but actually it's got some points where you can apply leverage or you can create change or kind of nudge it in a different direction. Yeah, it, it, it can give you Donald Trump. It can give you Greta Thunberg. It can give you, you know, brilliant local community organizations doing amazing things, or it can give you, you know, toxic corporate activity. It's largely where you want to point it and what, what you see is the benefit. It's hard to escape sustainability, obviously, and the climate crisis when, when talking about any of this, particularly talking about future, even though, as we talked before, you know, the limits to growth. When was the limits to growth published? It was 71, I think. Early I 70s, yeah, yeah. So there's been, and certainly insurance companies have been talking about the impact of climate change since, what, the 50s, I think, at least, or 50s, 60s. So it's not like this is this is new and they've taken that systemic yeah. view. And I know you've got, it's an interest of yours, but it, either in that or in sort of in general, what, are there any kind of patterns or kind of future signals that you're looking at that you're finding particularly interesting at the moment that you're able to talk about? <laughs> sure. sure. Um, I think, I mean, this is, we're in the early stages of a new project that's kind of getting into this and, it, and it's having just returned from LA and, you know, experienced firsthand the kind of slow permanent emergency, I think is what one writer called it. You know, this is the sort of the fires that will actually never go out that, you know, we're, we are rethinking or probably recognizing honestly that we're now moving much more into a, into a world where we have to figure out ways to manage risk, not eliminate risk in, in terms of climate and manage the transition in the system that we live in. And I think there's a lot more chatter and kind of conversation going on amongst people in the futures field, people who are working in sort of sustainability futures around how do we actually live with this versus a conversation of how do we completely eliminate or change it? I think this, you know, again, you know, the system is tipped already and to some extent. And that, again, poses a really different set of questions. It's now shifting from, you know, how do we try to hit a particular target and swerve, you know, and miss the crisis to how do we adapt and find ways to yield the best out of the situation that we're in while still trying to kind of stop the progress. And that's, again, a complicated challenge to present to people. You can either kind of fall over into a state of grief or just ball yourself up into nothing but positive action. And I think somewhere in the middle, you know, is a balance of, Again, how do we how do we kind of remap and understand the system that we're sitting in, see what 
and honestly confront the kind of indicators that we're seeing. You know, we can't just pretend away sea level rise or, you know, temperature increase or population movement. That's the hard data that's sitting there. And I think, the you know, we're going to need everybody, including a lot of brilliant people in design and are, you know, to, to think about how you reframe and recreate a world where we have to kind of keep things moving and give ourselves the space to mitigate that risk while we adapt to this kind of broader situation. That's a very, very different way of thinking about things. It probably reflects more of where, you know, Meadows and Randers heads were when they wrote Limits to Growth in the early 70s. You know, we, I got into a van at a conference recently in, in Frankfurt and Jürgen Randers hopped in on the other seat and I was stunned to think, well, here I am in 2019 sitting across from this brilliant thinker who wrote this book when I was, you know, starting school. <laughs> and luckily we're all still alive and we have this moment to meet, but we didn't really do a lot with what they gave us and we're paying the price for it now. So I think, uh, you know, it was a good reminder to get back to work. There's um, a question that's a bit of an oxymoron, but if I can't ask you, I can't ask anyone, which is out of all of those things that you're seeing going, what's what's the biggest unknown? I mean, what, where do you feel like we have a real blind spot here? And of course, by definition, a blind spot is a blind spot, so you don't know it. But like I say, your your job is partly to kind of at least see the effects of the antimatter, you know, and say oh, there's, there's something here, but I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but I feel like we have a blind spot here. I, th- I think there's a couple of areas. I think the biggest one is clearly climate. I mean, that is the system we're sitting in. And you we haven't talked about it enough, and you can't really talk about it enough. But I think that, you know, there we're describing our ability to even continue to think about other unknowns. And there's so much variability in the the modeling of how that may behave we really don't know. And that can affect everything. I think beyond that, you know, there are probably more mundane issues of kind of political systems and how they will, you know, kind of tip one way or the other. Again, we're sort of balanced finally right now on the edge of, you know, falling either towards autocracy broadly for, you know, decades or centuries, or finding a different form of kind of democracy and and representation going forward. Those are big systems questions. Yeah. You know, little things like quantum computing, I stay up late and read about because those could fundamentally change not just the fabric of computation that sits underneath everything, but how we even understand the universe. So small thoughts for late nights. (laughs) (laughs) So talking of which, we're coming up to the end. I I have a question that I ask all the guests, and you all know the Eames film Powers of Ten and that kind of relationship between different sizes of powers of ten in the universe. Can you think of one small thing that has an outsized effect on the world, either something that already exists or something you feel like should be paid more attention to? Ooh, um, for some reason, my, like the term language sticks in my head, and that's not a small thing. It's a it's a kind of a universal, but I think we tend to kind of dismiss it as a small thing on a kind of daily basis. I wouldn't, I can't really point to an object or a a product or a a small idea, but I feel like we dismiss language as is the sort of wallpaper <laughs> of of our lives but you know we're seeing the kind of incredible power of very small packets of language of ideas or of words of sentiment you know you, you mentioned it earlier one one poorly written letter to another world leader or a tweet you know or a, just a single packet of data you know a couple of words you tell somebody in a hallway passing i think those because of the world we live in i feel like language is the you know, is that kind of massive lever 
that can you know either lift ideas or utterly disrupt entire complex systems. I think when you and I last met, we were talking. We both you live in in Holland, and I live in Germany. We were both talking about this thing of you know when you when you learn a new language, particularly if you learn a new language as an adult, you suddenly have this realization that how much we misunderstand must misunderstand each other all day, even in your own language. And um, I agree. I can see how language is a, a huge. It's a it's a remarkable thing because it obviously makes everything kind of actually work. And I think probably has allowed us to store knowledge and pass it on and and all of that stuff. But uh, I've even in Australia when I was you know obviously even speaking English in Australia and it it's easy to kind of feel like oh this is this is my language and everyone understands me. But I noticed there were certain things that I would say sometimes that would trigger reactions that I didn't. I didn't really understand, didn't make sense to me. And it was clearly because of the kind of the cultural history of that. And I guess you probably must have that too in Holland. It, well, it, it allows us to kind of live in these alternate realities, right? You know, you live in a kind of small Anglo sphere bubble and as do we. And, you know, it's an English language office sitting in a Dutch speaking street in another country. So it's, we're keenly aware of the the delicacy of individual language, but even kind of back to the futures issue, how you position something, how you describe it can carry a, you know, a very big payload and help people either understand it or misunderstand it. So I feel like it's, it's, uh, and as a language, you know, as a language student in college, it's, it's an important, but overlooked small, you know, low tech piece of, uh, utility. I've wanted it's low tech, but pretty essential to everyday life. <laughs> Scott, where can we find you? So changeist is how you might think it's spelled. It's change and ist on, on the end.com. You're on medium as well, right? On Medium, uh, and I think this the extension at Changest uh, on Twitter at Changest. Basically, uh, you know, any platform you look for us, that's probably where you can find us. And probably in the next few months, we'll be ramping up HowToFuture.com and at HowToFuture for the book as well. Right, and so we'll put a, a link to the uh, the pre order. I'm really looking forward to it. So, How to Future: Leading and Sense Making in an Age of Hyper Change. And you also have a podcast as well called Under Futures, right? Yes. Um, Madeline Ashby and I have run a podcast. We've had one for this year. I think we're in season one is what we're calling it. Trying to kind of get at some of these under-discussed issues about the future. Um, what are the topics that don't get picked up in the more kind of shiny, excited uh, discussions about the future? I was listening to the Ghost Smart Cities one the other day. That was kind of really interesting. Recorded, yeah, recorded in the middle of an empty smart city or an almost empty smart city in the desert. So sometimes we take it on location. Yeah, it's crazy to kind of think of something that seems so futuristic already a ghost town. That's that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we try to understand where we've been before and where we may be going. There there are some things there right now. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, construction, but it's it's important to kind of you know look at something like that and ask the question like what was planned and why hasn't it happened exactly that way? And there you know from that we can learn. I thought you were about to say what were we thinking. <laughs> there's a um, there's a very good blog called Paleo Future, which is the, the sort of history of the future by a guy called Matt Novak, and he has he finds all of this sort of old material about kind of projections into the future, you know whether it's it's you know from Walt Disney or all these old kind of prospectuses or leaflets or you know videos he finds it's brilliant and it kind of is a really good reminder that we generally kind of get the future terribly wrong. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the, I think it's Philip Tetlock who talks about if you want to become a better forecaster or sort of thinker about the future, you need to be able to learn from the mistakes of past forecasts. And uh, I think there's a lot to be, 
there's a lot to be entertained by with those, but also a lot to kind of figure out why do we keep thinking this way in loops? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, quite so. a lot of the arcs there are kind of correct, but the actual technology itself is uh, changes. In- we, I use it in teaching. It's a useful tool to kind of say, look, hubris can be dangerous. You know, people who are, who are smarter than you before you were you know, wildly misguessing that we might float in the air above Paris in our ball gowns and go to the opera and flying cars. (laughs) We're not quite there yet. Give it a couple of years. Scott, thank you very much for being my guest on Power of Ten. Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure. You can find the transcript of Power of Ten on thisishcd.com, where you'll also find the other podcasts on the network. My name's Andy Palane. You'll find me online as apalane on Twitter and and most other places, and also palane.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.